for May 20th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 255. I think I like Star Trek 2 better than Star Trek 2. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here in Los Angeles, a city that's better at everything. <laughs> no, Including city traffic. Hey, yeah. yo. Hey. Uh, no, sorry. I'm just repping my hood, y'all. Um, we're here to talk about Star Trek Into Darkness. We have uh, back with us, we're honored to have the world's foremost expert in Star Trek, in all things Star Trek, and it's Ben Krinsky. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's great to have the world's foremost expert. <laughs> I'm not going to live this down, am I? <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. We're, we're putting that on you. It's a gift. Um, all right. Uh, what movie franchise are we going to take in to darkness uh ben you can um you can elect to go in alphabetical order or you can uh elect to have pride of place at the end of the alphabet what is it going to be for you sir uh i think i'll go at the end thank you you got it first in the alphabet drink it's peter fenzel i think that we all need to eat pray love into darkness, <laughs> which is one woman's search for everything across Italy, India, and Indonesia. And darkness. In, into darkness. Yeah, and dark, no, darkness in all those places. And darkness. So that's uh, a good question. Is darkness a fourth place? Or does she just go to Italy, India, and Indonesia at night? I was thinking that's what it was. I was thinking it was just a shot-for-shot remake of Eat, Pray, Love. It's just every scene is at night. Uh, and like, I guess there probably are scenes at night in Eat, Pray, Love. But maybe um, either that or she like... She gets like an evil clone, like what is it, X X twenty three, like uh, the uh, the Project X clones uh, Julia Roberts as she's traveling around Italy, and so she has to like cope with this dystopian uh, uh, kind of military industrial manipulation of her genes, as she's also trying to sort of discover herself through privileged literature. So one of those things, I suspect. Hello. So uh, excellent, uh, Mark Lee. What franchise are we taking into darkness? Indiana Jones into darkness, which in a way has already been done with Temple of Doom, I guess. If you'll recall, that's when Steven Spielberg was going through a divorce and made the darkest of the uh, of the three Indiana Jones movies. Oh, well, I guess four. We have to acknowledge Crystal Skull. Um, but uh, relative to like the gritty and grittiness and darkness of our modern day franchises, um, it, it's not even that particularly dark. There's still a lot of level to, levity uh, to it. So uh, Indiana Jones Into Darkness, it'll have a, a couple of important things. One, um, it'll just show Indiana Jones dealing with the fallout of all of his adventures. He's got post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, he you know, he has, has seen all sorts of uh, supernatural phenomena and just does not know what to believe in and what is real and what is, uh, uh, what is, what is myth anymore. And also, uh, the villain will be introduced with a very generic-sounding name and then will dramatically reveal himself to be... Mola Ram. <laughs> we have here, uh, you may have heard him join the podcast uh, a little late. This might not be fair to put him on the spot, but sir, Jordan Stokes, we're glad to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm okay. Uh, what franchise are you going to take into darkness? Taking it into darkness means making it like darker and grittier, basically, right? It means what you think it means. It could just okay. mean making everybody African-American. Uh, interesting. <laughs> what? You don't want to watch uh, Elizabeth, the Golden Army, Into Darkness? Or oh, that's Hellboy 2, the Golden Army, Into Darkness. <laughs> or Elizabeth, the Golden Age. Or just a wow. crossover of it where it's just made by John Singleton. <laughs> Elizabeth, the Golden Army Age, Into Darkness. Oh, my goodness. Wow, it's going to be one of those shows, isn't it? <laughs> Apparently. Okay, so I'm going to pick the American Pie franchise. <laughs> Excellent. What would that, what would that be like? <laughs> it's because there's, there's nothing else to do with it at this point. And, um, man. <laughs> there have been a bunch like, of direct-to-video sequels of the, you know, in, the American Pie, uh, in the American Pie thing. So this, this could be a return to the cinema for, the American, for Eugene Levy uh, at Alia in the American Pie franchise. Right. Well, Eugene Levy is playing old Eugene Levy. <laughs> Young Eugene Levy is played by what, like Andy Samberg? Do we think? Um, <laughs> and basically, like, so there's there's a, an amount of dark that you could take the American Pie franchise that is really totally unacceptable. Um, but you know, we're gonna we're gonna wave off from that, right? 
And uh, it opens with these four, you know, high school seniors uh, touring a, a, a Mapplethorpe exhibition at, uh, at the Guggenheim. <laughs> and they're like, guys, I can't believe we're all going to graduate high school without having our bleep, right? <laughs> that point it goes to food for this podcast. But that's basically what it'll be. Um, all right. Uh, my turn. I am going to take the band The Darkness into darkness. <laughs> And they are it's going to be um it, they're going to make actually like a very serious uh you know social commentary kind of rock and roll record about uh extremely arduous uh social problems poverty global poverty uh you know all kinds of deeply entrenched um injustice uh that we have in the world and the uh and the um yeah, you know the 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 darkness into darkness, and they're all going to be like kind of just like looking very soberly and somberly into the camera on the album cover, with none of the trappings of of rock and roll. In fact, it's going to be an acoustic album, "The Darkness Into Darkness." <laughs> I believe in a thing called collective action problems. So. <laughs> uh, all right, sir, you have pride of place. Our special guest, the world's foremost expert on all things Star Trek. Yeah. Ben Krinsky, uh, what are you going to take into darkness? So uh, I think, well, so I've been thinking a bit about uh, planning vacations lately. So I think the, the franchise that I'd like to take into darkness is the, uh, the, the Lonely Planet Travel Guide series. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it, it, it might be sort of like a crossover, end up being sort of a crossover between a, a normal travel guide and the worst case scenario handbook series. Not really sure. I'm thinking like, you know, when you, you, you fall asleep on the Paris metro and you wind up, you know, in a, in a suburb where you don't want to be, this would be the guidebook that would tell you what to do in that circumstance. <laughs> sure, sure. Worst case scenario guide to traveling in Paris. Worst case, scenario, worst case scenario guide to traveling in New Jersey. If worse comes to worst, <laughs> you have traveled to New Jersey. <laughs> hi, hi, Pete. <laughs> you know, let that stand, Peter. You know, rep your hood. Look, all right, uh, every once, at some point in every man's life, he'll find himself on the turn pla- turnpike with nowhere else to go. So if Jordan wants to cultivate those kinds of relationships with the locals, I just want to warn him that there may be consequences down the road. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of time between sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind, so I'm not going to get all uppity about it right now. <laughs> If you, uh, yeah, uh, midway through my life, I found myself uh, in the midst of a dark turnpike. <laughs> uh, all right, Star Trek Into Darkness, our topic. No, no point in, uh, no point in, in even plugging anything because Eurovision is over. And uh, oh, well, let's talk about Eurovision just a little bit. Markley, you were at the OverthinkingIt.com Eurovision viewing party in New York. So, did you get one or two people to come out? Uh, it was epic. We had standing room only. We were like overflowing from the back room, which we had, uh, which we had reserved. Uh, very strong Azerbaijani contingent showed up, <laughs> and we were all rooting for them at the end with the glass box trick. It was just remarkable. That's remarkable. The, yeah, that's but, a, that's a quick thing. side note. I, w- I would like to see Eurovision into darkness as well. I don't quite know what that would be, but economic crisis. That would be the uh, that would be the 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 Dutch entry from this year, I think. Oh God! Yeah. Oh, mm. <laughs> which I mean, they, yeah, they made a respectable showing. So this is the end of the uh, this is the end of the uh, Eurovision series. Thank goodness, if you weren't watching it, I guess. Uh, but if you if you were into it, we'll be back next year. And by the way, um, if you look on the the uh, Facebook page of the Lithuanian singer who uh, sang the song about um, you know, if you don't know, I'm in love with you. Uh, because, uh, but it becomes untrue because of the shoes I'm wearing today. One shoe is love and the other is pain. You remember that? Uh, he actually posted on his Facebook wall um, our video. <laughs> so apparently he saw it <laughs> and liked it. So we are huge in Lithuania. Never mind that most of the fans hate us because apparently uh, our, our reviews are, are snide. Even the songs that we like... <laughs> <laughs> we make some we, we make some cracks about and apparently that's just our way and apparently not everyone gets our sort of good-natured ribbing and takes it in the the spirit of, of friendship and fun in which it's intended uh apparently we kill everything we love 
So, <laughs> like JT Abrams does. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if you go on the YouTube page for that Lithuanian uh, Lithuanian video, we are getting flamed hardcore by the Lithuanians. So, I would like to apologize to the nation of Lithuania and thank you all for bearing with us through this this YouTube. The the party was epic. Yeah, but it spilled out. We packed the bar, and uh, we'll be back next year with more Eurovision. All right. Yes, Pete. I, I'm going to steal your segue. You know who else kills every. Everything he loves. J.J. Abrams. <laughs> Felicity, dead. Alien. Wait, he did Felicity? Hold on a minute. J.J. Abrams did Felicity? Yeah, early in his career, right? Oh, okay. Continue. That's what, that's what like, got him the blank check to write Lost, wasn't it? What about doing a college drama with Carrie Russell would convince someone to put people on an island for no reason? I don't know. Hollywood is weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. continue. I interrupted. Someone who, never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what would convince someone to, to give a lot of money to someone who'd only made sort of low-budget splatter movies to make, you know, a three-part Lord of the Rings series? You know, strange things happen. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, anyway. Uh, well, uh, we should go to the expert. We should go to the expert voice first. I mean, there's a lot. There's, I, I feel like there's a lot to talk about with this film, as, as with most films that we talk about. Um, but uh, you want to give us your, your impressions Sure. Uh, so I, when the movie ended, I was sort of in a, a state of, I guess you could call it mild shock. And, and that may be just because I was sitting kind of close to the screen and saw a, a late night 3D showing. So it was just, it, it was such a sort of a, a bombastic movie that, that it might have just been an audio visual overload. But when I, I collected myself, I, the first thing that actually came to mind was, uh, oh, I guess I should say blanket spoiler alerts, uh, blanket spoiler alert for Star Trek Into Darkness. Whole thing. Uh, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Because, because the first... Also Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yes, that, yeah, that's exactly, Mark. Because the first phrase that popped into my head when the, when the movie ended was, you know, I think I like Star Trek II better than Star Trek... Two, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still I'm still a little bit uh, perplexed as to why they. Well, I, I mean, I, I can think of reasons why, um, commercial and otherwise. But but something I'm actually was curious to talk about is why they felt compelled to reboot the Wrath of Khan, essentially to make Star Trek two, two. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's, it's the yeah. best. Is it? I mean, I don't know if it's the best Star Trek movie, but it's certainly up there, right? Like, if you were J.J. Abrams yeah, and you're like, I well, can't I think don't of a better one than that. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I have a soft spot in my heart for four. I know it's ridiculous, but I kind of like it. Yeah, four is pretty charming. good as an overall movie. I mean, six is good too. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I love five, but not because it's good. And because it has a row, row your boat round in it, and it is like important to the plot um but uh but if it's your jj abrams because jj abrams has publicly admitted he doesn't even like star trek right like i mean he's just said like he's just trying to make a fun movie so i guess he's like well i don't like star trek what do other people like about star trek well they really seem to like this wrath of khan movie so how can i make this movie over (laughs) but instead of it making kind of no sense and kind of meandering around the middle a whole lot and having this whole weird subplot about uh captain kirk turning 50 i just go straight down the middle and make khan a kung fu guy you know who has like machine gun skills you know like uh like that sort of thing I mean, it seems a reasonable. It seems like a reasonable reason to make a Wrath of Khan remake is that, like, Con, other Con, people, like, yeah, yeah. Khan Khan is one of the most recognizable and 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 uh, well liked villains on on Star Trek. So one of the most the famous villain, like the ultimate uh, foe for Captain Kirk. So yeah, um, sure. So that there's a. I have an old post in the back catalog about like why the second Batman movie that Christopher Nolan did works so well is because, well, origin stories are easy, but once you've done that, what can you possibly do? And you need to pick your franchise's best known, best loved villain and sort of do their story. Uh, and then you're sort of out of luck for the third one. <laughs> well, for yeah. the third one, you just, what is it? Um, what are some great third ones that you do? Uh, you just get Sean Connery in it for some reason? Yeah, so, just go to the Old West, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, if, if they turn to Star Trek Four, which is another well-liked Star Trek movie, I mean, I was thinking also that Star Trek Four is a very heavy-handed sort of environmentalism allegory. Um, it was sort of in the Save the Whale days. And I was thinking, well, what could they do? They could do sort of a heavy-handed, uh, I don't know, global warming allegory or something. 
for Star mm. Trek Reboot Three. <laughs> I, I, sure, I mean that would be that would be great. But I feel like in the pattern, you have to have a uh, you have to have a, a bad Star Trek movie before you can do a good Star Trek movie. Because, <laughs> you know, they all. I mean, they alternate. Though, though, honestly, maybe maybe this one doesn't count. Like yeah. aesthetically, Star Trek to me has always had a kind of stateliness, like almost like a pompous kind of character to it. And that's, that's one of the things I like about it. I, truth be told that, that there's this kind of like very measured, uh, sort of aspect to it. And this, like with all the, you know, I don't know, like running across the bridge and then the bridge is on its side and the whole, I mean, the, the sort of sense of disorientation when my girlfriend and I walked out of this movie, I was like, thank God we didn't go see that in 3d because i would have been yakking into my popcorn bag uh, yeah <laughs> with the you know with all the just the the like high level of disorientation and spinning around and all the you know i don't know that that uh it must have had the whole hallway on a on a gimbal as so, they so were. Ma- matt basically you saying you're preferring like the next generation form of like the bridge you have a crisis on the bridge you go to the ready room you talk about it you go back to the bridge you go to engineering you come up with a science solution you go back to the bridge and execute it right yeah, I I don't know. There's something, and maybe it's just because I grew up on the Next Generation TV show. There's something about that that just says Star Trek to me, right? Yeah. So um, uh, there's so Matthew Iglesias from Slate wrote a really, um, I think, quite quite beautiful essay um, about why he likes Star Trek. And I think it was actually written uh, before, or either just before, or just after the last movie came out, the first reboot came out. And, and one of the things he uh, just touches touches upon, which is something else maybe we can get into, is that he he, he argues that Star Trek is actually a, a franchise which lends itself better to TV than to movies. And one of the reasons is is because a lot of the sort of um, at, at times, frankly, blunt, but but I, I love it even though it's blunt, um, sort of uh, moralizing and and philosophy and all that sort of stuff, and the, the sort of the quieter moments with where characters are talking and debating weighty issues. Um, all that stuff happens actually is actually better. Um, in the TV show. That said, I think that they actually find moments for that kind of thing in the in the previous Star Trek movies. So Star Trek Two has, as Pete you alluded to, the scene where uh, Bones and and Kirk are are sort of sitting quietly in a room talking about getting old. And it just it, it, there. I mean, that's also the part of Star Trek that I really liked. And and I just thought that this movie was just so breathless um, and and just frenetic. Um, I just sort of, long, I don't know, I longed for, for a quieter moment. But then again, that's not really the movie they're making. They're making a splashy action movie for a summer crowd. So. Yeah, and in addition to that, they're making a splashy action movie for summer crowds for international box office success. Yeah. This is another thing yeah. that's really interesting, but it's been part of the discourse on this movie, is that Star Trek, apparently, I wasn't, didn't aware, wasn't aware of this, Star Trek up until now has been a very much an American phenomenon. When you look at uh, the box office for the last movie, which is a big success domestically, did not do nearly as well internationally as they were hoping. Um, from what I understand, the TV shows don't have that same sort of cult following that they uh, overseas that they do in the United States. So, um, you know, what, what, what we're seeing is Star Trek sort of like pulled towards the middle, you know, for, for the standard fare for the tent pole, big action-packed summer blockbuster that's going to play well in uh, overseas where they maybe don't have as much invested in the characters or this you know this the sense of the what we consider to be the classic tv style star trek problem solving and mm. I, I think there's something to be said to be lamenting that the doctor from voyager is really popular in argentina crush he's just like giant paper mache sculptures of his head and just carry it down the street of buenos aires like yeah it's, it's totally so- it's huge <laughs> If, if if I may, let me let me throw this out there. Do you think that the if that is is that if that's true, if Star Trek's popularity is, has been predominantly American up to this point, um, is that just a matter of of marketing, or is there something deeper going on there? Because I I've always well, had this notion that Star Trek is is in fact a very American kind of story. I mean, the, yes. the Federation, for example, is this sort of it's never quite clear exactly how it works politically, but it seems like this sort of idealized America. It's this right. federal sort of government and it's very diverse it's got it's very pluralistic it sort of seems to take the best aspects of american well i don't yeah. need to veer yeah. into the politics but, but or yeah. maybe, no, 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 by all means, this is overthinking a podcast well this is what we yeah. do okay so jordan <laughs> and i were talking about this after we saw the movie and uh we, we reminded ourselves that uh, star trek in its roots is in a is a space western Right, wagon yes. trains of the stars. I think is how Gene Broddenberry described it. So, so the Federation is the sort of idealized United States of America, manifest destiny, spreading out into the frontier. Um, 
uh, on a more character level, Captain Kirk is this idealized American cowboy, right? Who right. Um, who breaks the rule in, in, in a way he's independent, um, but he's also still part of the institution, right, of Starfleet. Right. Another way that you could think of it is that um, the Federation is sort of like the UN with Earth as America, right? Um, which I don't know if this is the way that the UN actually works, but I have this idea from my like high school civics and government class that basically America is running the show and everybody else can play along with us, which you can understand why that wouldn't maybe fly too well overseas if it's perceived that way by anybody else. But I don't know. I have another theory, um, which is that, or conjecture rather, uh, which is that Star Trek, the TV show, the original series was actually not that popular was sort of popular, but it wasn't like an overwhelming hit or anything. And the thing that really converted it from a, you know, a show with about 76 or so episodes into this big phenomenon is that in the intervening time between when the TV show aired and uh, when the movies came out, which is like, you know, 15 years, uh, there, was, there was syndication and there were also conventions. And so there were, there were Star Trek fans who were meeting each other and traveling to meet each other uh, in these various locations around the United States who were really into Star Trek and were sharing their enthusiastic, enthusiasm for Star Trek with other people. That, that their social capital is a big part of what made Star Trek take root and become a deeper social phenomenon. And if those people were primarily in the United States, they didn't sow the same seeds that, that overseas that they would sow, sow here. Now, I mean, one of the counterexamples that would be Star Wars, but I still, I still don't quite think, because Star Wars was just so broadly popular and accessed that broad audience right away. But maybe it's possible that this sort of social norm of liking Star Trek is something that's spread through a kind of micro-history of people interacting with people rather than kind of a broadcast of one-to-many uh, through the mass media. Right, and then the other thing is that TV just wasn't internationally broadcast in the same way up until quite recently, you know? Like, it used to be that in America, if you wanted to be a fan of Doctor Who, that meant buying, like, VHS cassettes. Uh, and were, yeah, ever... and they were in PAL, right? So you had to get, like, a special player to play them or something. Yeah, mm. or, like, maybe, maybe, like, they, you could buy them through, like, I feel like the public radio catalog for some reason <laughs> that my parents used to get had Doctor Who episodes on there that you could get in, like, the, the normal VHS format. But still, you had to really go out of your way. Whereas these days, you can get it on BBC America. Um, any new Star Trek franchise that were to come out with, anyone around the world could watch. But that really wasn't the case with either of the two sort of warhorse franchises. Sure. I mean, if it were Baywatch, then it would be a global phenomenon, right? But I'm trying to think if there are any, but there are no movies about Baywatch. I'm trying to think if there are any movies, any movie franchises that are based primarily off of a TV show that have really caught on internationally. Um, and it's tough to, to pick one off the top of your head because you can't, you can't say something like X-Men or Iron Man because that's not quite the same, even though there were TV shows uh, over the years. There's no, like, MASH movie. There's no Seinfeld movie. Well, there is. Yes, there there is, is a no MASH, MASH movie. Oh, there's a MASH movie. <laughs> 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 was it was yeah, it way. MASH 2, The Wrath of MASH, The Wrath of Alta. Is that what it is? By the way, I wanted to mention this earlier when we were talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and, you know, the obvious similarities with Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, which is that uh, my girlfriend had not seen Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and was thoroughly confused by the plot and was not really connecting to Khan as a villain at all. I don't know if anybody else had a similar experience with uh, someone that they had brought to the movie, but I thought this movie was not really depending very heavily on having seen it, but it was trying mining, it was mining deep it was trying very hard to mine people's attachments and emotions to that like i specifically asked my girlfriend like when uh, spoiler when uh, uh, kirk is close to death in the radioactive chamber and spock yells con i asked her did that make sense to you and she's like no <laughs> like, <laughs> it makes even less sense in the original in the original yeah. one it makes no sense at all like, Krinsky, you, you can explain that right yeah well uh, yeah in the, in the uh yeah in the, i mean in star trek 2 that that uh, no one yells Khan when it, I mean, the, the, the Khan yell comes earlier than the death scene at the end of Star Trek II. In the original, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, uh, so Khan has put these, these eels into the ears of Chekhov and Captain Terrell, who's this other Starfleet captain. And so he's taken over, so Khan has taken over these, the minds of these two Starfleet officers. And Khan then orders them, Khan is up on the ship and via a communicator orders these two guys to shoot Kirk, who's with these two guys. So then, um, uh, 
by Confluence events, they don't shoot Kirk uh, and anyway, and, and then Kirk gets on the communicator and starts having this heated conversation with Khan, and Khan kind of leans back in his chair and goes on this very str- long, kind of creepy monologue about how, you know, Kirk, I didn't manage to kill you, but I don't need to kill you. I want to hurt you. I want to go on hurting you. And then, and then in a moment of, after Khan sort of says this horrible stuff for a few minutes, Kirk, just out of nowhere, just yells, Khan! Into the, into the communicator. And then it sort of echoes through space. There's a sort of, yeah. there's a sort of whole, the shot of the moon they're on, and it's echoing, and it's, there's weird dramatic chords. And Kirk huh. is just in the, yeah, I mean, uh, I know this is a favorite moment of Blinkies because I want to add one more thing to it. Because the thing that isn't apparent when Kirk yells Khan really loud is that Kirk has already figured out a trump card for how to defeat Khan's like plot, which is right. to like strand him in the middle of this asteroid or this planet or whatever. Which is that like Spock is going to come and get them, right? right. Like, uh, right. <laughs> and so that, when that, he yells Khan, it's like, oh yeah. no, all is lost. But like, it's fine. Yeah, they've already, he's, already, he's already talked to Spock, and they've already worked out how this is going to go down. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Arguably, arguably, like, convincing Khan that uh, that he has beaten you is the best thing to do there, but there's never a suggestion, right, that Shatner no. is playing a deep game. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very blunt. Now, so, so actually, one, one just quick piece of trivia, which, which, I, which is relevant to this thing, is that um, a, a funny thing about Star Trek Two is that... Um, uh, Khan and Kirk are act- actually never share a scene. They're on different ships or in different places throughout the entire movie. Um, they all, the only dialogue scenes they have are over this communicator and also over the view screen, but that's also, of course, done with, with blue screens and things. So they're not, they're never actually in on the same set together. And, uh, uh, so, so there's a, there's a clip I saw of Ricardo Montalban, the, the actor who played Khan, uh, discussing his experience trying to trying to do that scene um, because William Shatner wasn't there. It was just a, a somewhat off camera reading the script. He had to give these lines. <laughs> he said it was a he said it was a young woman with a very soft voice. So 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 as as Montalban had to start right. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> exactly. So as Montalban described it, he said he had to he give these lines these 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 lines. Kirk, you and then he'd hear yes, but Kirk, no, you and then he'd go go back and forth in this this kind of ridiculous way. <laughs> but but that, that's actually arguably one. If there's any, I, I'm 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 hard pressed to, to to pick something that that maybe worked better in the reboot of the Wrath of Khan than in the original Wrath of Khan. But the fact that Kirk and Khan actually share screen time, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not too bad. Yeah. Khan never really does much in the. Well, I mean, I don't know because Khan. Khan isn't a physical person, like isn't a physical monster, an imposing physical presence. He's just supposed to be really smart, yeah. right? Like, I mean, he gets, well, he's supposed to be really strong, but the yeah. only time he ever shows it is that there's a – when the ship is blowing up, he, like, picks up a big piece of metal that's clearly, like, foam. Well, and no, he, has, he also lifts Chekhov over his head. Yeah, that's but, right. Right. There's, anyway, there's a few feats of strength, but but I'm sorry, yeah. go on. But he's much less of a sort of universal soldier character and much more oh. of a sort of like the whole idea of him being a legacy of a past civilization that's been kind of abandoned uh, it plays a little bit less like sort of a Heinlein plot and a little bit more like uh, like something almost like mythopoetic or something like, um, you know, kind of like cultural. Um, yeah. A little bit less isolated. So, it felt cultural to me as well in this one, but that's true. That's a good point. I don't know exactly what to say. Well, Khan is more exotic and orientalized in the because there was a they, we can we can address this. I know I know it's something that we should probably address is that um there are a lot of people complaining that Khan was whitewashed because the original mm-hmm. character is actually Sikh from northern India and the actor who played him is of course Montalban from uh, Corinth mm-hmm. uh, where they make fine letters. <laughs> <laughs> from, from from Mexico, more accurately. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but it's like I think that Khan works better. I mean, it makes very little sense for the like megalomaniacal, crazy, violent, uh, like you know, fascist guy to be from to be a Sikh. Like that doesn't. But of course, it's like well, people don't act like their ethnicities is kind of like one of the. Yeah. One of the lessons. Uh, that's actually a um, that's a Jules Verne reference because Nemo is a Sikh. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense then. Okay, because mm-hmm. it, it didn't make any sense when I was reading it. It didn't make any sense to me. But but Khan in the new one is made as sort of like a Nazi, right? Like he's like I'm superior being and I'm from this old war and I'm going to kill everybody who isn't a superior being and I have really chiseled cheekbones and I punch people. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> Black trench coat. Yeah. Yeah. The extermination, you're right, Pete, the extermination aspect of his plan is not really part of the original Khan's plan. He wants mm-hmm. to be a ruler of, of men, but, but, but this one drops in a line in there somewhere about how he wants to kill everyone who, uh, or someone says something about how he wants to kill everyone who's not a superior I mean, being. If the original Khan won, 
like there isn't necessarily a sense that things would be all that bad, right? Like, well, it's called, I mean, it's called the Wrath of Khan, but Khan's wrath is directed at William Shatner. Yeah, right. At for first, the I mean, the idea is like he wants to get the Genesis torpedo, and then he'll have like the oh, ultimate weapon in the universe yeah. and be unstoppable. Yeah. But okay, but, but that's what but, it's called in darkness. But they didn't even go into darkness. No. So here's a, <laughs> yeah. There's an interesting thing about the uh, the new con, which I think we ought to bring up, which is that we get that one line about ethnic cleansing, which is presumably something that old Spock told new Spock. Right? Like, that's the only person that could have given him that information about what it was that Khan was doing um, that makes him a dangerous guy. So the fact that old Spock never really had that, you know, in the source text as part of who Khan is, is really kind of interesting. And then out of all the stuff we see him doing in this film, he does some stuff that's bad. He does some stuff that's very destructive. He kills a lot of people. But there's always an explanation for his behavior, uh, which is very, very human. You know, and, and he's not a thoroughly unsympathetic character, which is, I think, very, very interesting. In particular, because this is apparently like this was the summer that big action movies deal with 9-11, right? Because we've had Iron Man 2, and then we've had this thing here. Well, Iron Man 3, Iron Man 3. Right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, never mind that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that moment, I mean, I know I, maybe you guys, some of you guys saw the conversation I had on Facebook about it, but uh, I really finally achieved closure, guys, thanks to that dedication at the end of the movie for the people, the <laughs> people who awesome. survived 9-11 and their families, uh, victims. I mean, you're, uh, being, I, you're, be, uh, you're being sarcastic, but like, what, do you, what do you think that was in there for? Like, seriously, what, why, why, if you're the makers of this movie, do you feel compelled to put that uh, thing in there? Because it, like, features the destruction of large buildings? Or No, you have to. You've got to. Because it, it ends with somebody suicide crashing an aircraft right. into a major city because he feels like his sort of um, group has been unfairly treated by the people of that city, and they are um, acceptable casualties. And then you don't paint him as a totally villainous person. So, I mean, it, it was heavy-handed and kind of dumb, but I feel like it better to do that than not to sort of acknowledge that you've basically provided a backstory and a, a justification, in a sense, for a 9-11-style attack. And, uh, and then, like, you know, just leave it hanging there. I mean, the other side of it is that they, the, movie, the, the movie in general is clearly about this, right? Because so much is about, I mean, is about oh, we shouldn't be turned violent when, uh, when people commit acts of violence against us. And it's very tacked on to the actual heart of the movie, which is, like, running from things, right? And, like, <laughs> it's like, let's run from this thing. Let's run towards this thing. Let's run away from this thing. Let's run up this hallway. Uh, oh, everything's so turning running. and we're running. Uh, but um, but uh, they, they, they have this sort of tacked-on discussion of basically, like, a very childish sort of attitude about how to deal with 9-11, you know, like the very, very first step, which is like, let's not become the monster. Okay, done. Hey, you know, let's, like, not, let's not forget the other uh, the political message of this movie is sort of like, how do we deal with 9-11 is let's not uh, target people for killings with drones. Exactly. Well, yeah, right? that's the big one, yeah. There's yeah, just yeah that's kind of, we're going to wall us over the head with that one. Yeah. 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 Extraordinary rendition, drone strikes, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the main yeah. thing is that this, all this stuff is tacked onto the movie, and I feel like they have to sort of say it at the end because the movie is silly enough that otherwise they might worry that their message isn't getting across. So, <laughs> it's like, I, guys, I wrote this movie for a reason. Sorry, sorry, Stokes. No, 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 please. Oh, I was going to say that <laughs> I was going to say that in, in, to pick up that uh, that notion of things being tacked on, Pete um, Stokes. I, I, I completely uh, agree with that. Your, your the analysis you just gave. I think it's that's the, the actual the actual reason why they did that, and and it was a heartfelt reason for doing it. But um, they but but a, a much more flippant uh, reason for doing that would be in the spirit of all the other little weird Star Trek references they threw in there as fan service. You could interpret the message about 9-11 as fan service in another sort of strange way in that in Star Trek 4, they put a dedication to the Challenger astronauts. So maybe they just wanted to act on a dedication. Star Trek movies need dedication sometimes. Wow. That one that, makes even less sense. That is a very cut. Well, Challenger had just happened when Star Trek 4 came out. So they, they felt compelled to, to do something because it was, it was yeah, and, very recent. And the connection between the U.S. space program and the Star Trek fictional franchise, it is, it is a close one. It's not, not yeah. there, you know? Yeah. The Enterprise is an actual space shuttle. 
That's right. Which was named Enterprise before there were any Star Trek movies. That was all the syndication really? fandom. Yeah. The, yeah, the Enterprise yeah, yeah. is dedicated in 1975 or 6, and the first movie didn't come out until, like, 79. Oh, oh right, 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 right. Yeah. I, 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 here's a question. In, in the Star Trek lore, and the Star Trek canon, have they somehow retconned that so that, like, that was original Enterprise? <laughs> uh, and that, that the Starship Enterprise named after the Spatial Enterprise? So I think That's going to be the next one. <laughs> yeah, actually, so they, in the ways, yes, they have. I mean, there's there's actually multiple instances in Star Trek where you, there's either a mural or a sequence of of of, some, of of ships flashing on a screen, or basically depictions of ships named Enterprise, and it's a sort of historical succession. Um, and usually the spatial is in there. I think it was also in this movie, because there's there a sequence. There was a model spaceship. Yeah, yeah, Marcus walks past a, 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 yeah, a row of model spaceships on his desk, and I think one of them might have been the space shuttle. I mean, there was a there was an aircraft carrier in the in the uh, observation lounge in in Star Trek: yes. The Next Generation. Yes, true. Yep. And there's yeah. an, is there an aircraft carrier called Enterprise? Also, there is. Oh. Yep. It was uh, it was featured in uh, Star Trek Four actually as well. They had to sneak aboard the Enterprise to to steal uh, radioactive material, whatever. The Even nuclear though, whistles. Exactly. Vessels. Yeah, vessels yes. Yes. Even though apparently they didn't film that aboard the Enterprise because the Enterprise was at sea at the time, but never mind. That's just... <laughs> um, but <laughs> Admiral, I have found the vessel. It is the Enterprise. Yeah, that's a, that, that scene gave me chills when I was a yeah. young teenager, you know? Yeah. And I didn't have better things to get chills about, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, though, I mean, the... The complaint that it's tacked on, isn't that the case with, with every single Star Trek movie and indeed every single science fiction movie that tries to have explosions, A, and an idea, B? <laughs> <laughs> that's certainly, that's fair. Um, I think the only reason that I call it out is because of the dedication at the end. Yeah. Well, uh, which makes it, which is like, no, it isn't just tacked on. This is serious, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's, it's a tonal difference. I mean, that was the same conclusion that I came to in the Facebook discussion we had about it, which was just that, like, it only feels inappropriate, not even inappropriate, but just, like, tonally off because they draw so much attention to it with the dedication at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it seems like a fairly common, I'm sure the first one had similar stuff. Right. The problem, the, the problem is that, that we're, you, you're working on two axes, as, as our, as Pete, my professor, John Hollander used to like to say, right? There's the like the uh, serious frivolous axis, and then there's the like the funny solemn axis. And in something frivolous like a summer popcorn movie, when you when you are in the frivolous solemn quadrant, you are in you know you're in dangerous territory. Right? But you know I would disagree because Wrath of Khan is frivolous solemn. Right, like, because it's all yeah. about middle midlife crises and aging, and there's certainly a lot of movies we sit on here and talk at great length about all of their ideas when they when other people would say that they're frivolous. Um, I just I don't know. There was something about the way that this one did where it was just more jarring than usual. Uh, more of a I, I completely, yeah, I, I completely agree with that, Pete. I think that this, I mean, this movie was. Again, as 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 the splashy summer action movie that it was was just over the top in in so many ways, and I think one of them was to try and sort of map the 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 the, the combination of frivolity and seriousness of Star Trek Two onto this much faster paced, more more sort of blunt structure of this of this new movie. So, for example, in Star Trek Two, again, you had these quiet scenes where people are sort of ruminating on age and on death, and you also have a set of characters in the original in Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Who, who have known each other for years, and so they, they have these deep emotional connections to each other. Um, so then when, you know, Spock ultimately dies at the end, there's this, you know, this man's, you know, Kirk's best friend has just died. Um, this movie, you know, tries to kind of invoke the same emotions and use the same dynamic, you know, big action followed by this, this, this dramatic death scene. But I don't know, I, I, I found it, all, yeah, I, I found, I don't know if this is exactly what you're referring to, Pete, but I found that very jarring because, if you if you think about the timeline that this movie is set in, you know these two guys actually haven't known each other that long. <laughs> sure, and, and they haven't developed the same. You, 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 yes, the, yes, Kirk and Spock are two famous characters, and yes, we're we're t- we're led to believe that they've they have developed a, a close personal relationship, but it just doesn't. I mean, the fact that you know Spock had tears streaming down his face. And then he yells, "Con!" It just was—it it just seemed like too much. <laughs> it seemed almost like they had a sexual relationship because that's the only kind of bond that I think that would have that would create get people that intensely frenetic. Well, right, and, it, and especially given that he he didn't Spock didn't at the beginning of the movie feel that about Uhura, right? Like, sure, this, sure. This is the real emotional <laughs> bond. This is the real emotional bond of the movie. 
Yeah, Kirk's before your heroes is one of the major, major messages of the film. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely felt like, because there's a moment where it's like, where Kirk is going to say something. He's like, there's something I want to tell you kind of about our relationship, right? And he never actually says it before he fake dies, before he comic book dies, right? Mm. And then like, and Spock says, it's like, oh, you're my friend, right? And it's like, the revelation of that from somebody who has probably only rarely said it before is, seems somewhat minor, Right, like you're my friend. Oh, thanks, that's great. We should hang out sometime. You know, that's rather than you know, you're my friend, backed up by you know, forty years, mm-hmm. right, of of time together through all sorts of stuff. Um, it, it's weird. It's funny that this particular scene seems to have suffered the same acceleration uh, of the rest of this whole Star Trek. But I mean, everything is faster, right? It's faster paced, fa- you know, bigger, splashier action sequences, and then the emotional sort of crescendo is seem happens faster and then the resurrection of one of the main characters happens faster they don't right. need a whole movie to search for kirk which is a shame because Christopher Lloyd was already putting on his makeup. It gets back to the, the thing that, rather, you were saying about the major attraction of Star Trek being its sort of like stolidness. Right. And the fact that it, it proceeds at roughly the speed of, of grand opera. You know, usually when people say space opera, they're yeah. talking about the other thing. But, you know, um, you think that in order to land that combination of goofy space adventure and here's a conversation about issues, you kind of need to have, like, you know, the fight scenes be very labored and sort of cordoned off from the rest of the film. And you need actors like, I mean, you know, I love Shatner as an actor. I love to see him really sink his teeth into stuff, but he's very, very deliberate, right? And, mm-hmm. and you're very aware of sort of the, the friction of uh, his acting technique versus the, like, the... Per- per- potential reality of the character and there's that interesting sort of um grinding of the gears that's involved whereas this one had some i thought some great performances you know cumberbatch is is a fantastic uh villain um and quinto had some hilarious lines and so on but uh but there's it's all all too believable in a sense to have to to function as allegory which is what they're asking it to do yeah as you, it's funny, yeah, as you get up, as you up the ante and the verisimilitude of the effects and things like this, it, the ability, right, like the mind's ability to kind of fill in the, the, the sketchy places, right, goes down. Yeah. Commensurate with that. But can we talk? No, please, after you. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, as a quick footnote, I was going to say that I, I may be sounding kind of like a downer uh, on this podcast, but I, I do think that, that this, this movie had an incredible abundance of talent, just to go along with what you were saying, Stokes. I think these are great actors, and I think, you know, I, I sort of actually long for this cast doing sort of old-school Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I really liked this movie while I was watching it, but the more I talk about it, the more I find myself talking down on it, just because it doesn't really bear the conversation as I might want it to. Uh, I don't know if you guys... I mean, I went home and literally watched Wrath of Khan immediately after. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Right. It's awesome. As you do. Do you think that when, when Leonard Nimoy showed up and he was talking, he was giving advice to his... I mean, that, that, was, a fun, that was a fun scene, right? Like, I've, I've sworn not to interfere in your, your life and to let you make your own choices. That said... Uh, you know, let's get real here. When he was talking about Khan, do you think he was talking about Ricardo Montalban? Uh, you know, or do you think he was talking about Benedict Cumberbatch, which would be a retcon? Oh, a retcon! <laughs> oh, man. I think, I think all that we know here is that Benedict Cumberbatch is going to age strangely. <laughs> <laughs> he has such a weird mouth. <laughs> yeah, <definitely>. Man. <laughs> like a trash no, It probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> <laughs> what could we Jeez. possibly add? Uh, hey, well, here's what I wanted to talk about. Um, well, actually, Jordan, to you because yeah, I think it sounded like you were going to say something before Krinsky jumped in. Well, no, I mean, I have a, I have a direction I'd like to take the podcast, but let's, uh, let's <laughs> just like Khan has a direction he'd like to take life in the universe, huh? Yeah. I'm pretending that I'm going to let Mark advance a topic, but secretly I'm planning to stun him as soon as we get onto the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Okay, so uh, where does Star Trek go from here? This is a bit complicated. Now, all signs point to J.J. Abrams leaving 
in Star Trek uh, to just focus on Star Wars, and that would make total sense. And just as a quick aside, J.J. Um, Abrams, uh, another reason, he, he didn't like Star Trek, and he kind of doesn't like it now because uh, CBS controls the rights to the television side of things. And so J.J. Abrams doesn't have the total creative, creative control that, that, or the something approaching total creative control that you would presumably have uh, with Disney and Star Wars. Right, so J.J. Abrams is going to be out of the picture. We've got Khan on, on all of his uh, genetic supermen on ice, waiting for uh, to be reanimated for a sequel. Um, you know, this uh, the, the, the from the first one to the second one it took like three years to put together, which is uh, longer than anyone was expecting. So, I think the future of Star Trek is very much open. And yeah, but he'll keep he'll stay on as a producer, right? Like, uh, you can't have a you can't have a uh, a Star Trek TV show. Kind of, and this, and the same characters in in Star Trek movies at the same time, right? Like because then you'd have like you'd have like Star Trek Junior, you know, on TV <laughs> where you can't get these kind of A list like Chris Pine and Zoe Saldana and and these people like who you know who wouldn't do that. Um, I mean, you would say you would you would think that, and yet you know, uh, Marvel's Agents of Shield is going to be on on television at the same time that Marvel is pumping out. Uh, big blockbuster movies with A-list actors. Sure, but the whole the whole deal. I mean, the whole deal was that like they're not going to be in it. It's it's about it's like the West Wing of Shield, right? Like it's about the people you know, kind of working in the in the rank and file of Shield, and like it was a big get when when Clark Gregg signed up to do that. Well, right, yeah, but nothing's preventing them from doing something similar, right? Like sort of a Starfleet Command TV show, yeah, right, right? I mean, wait, I'm, am, I, am, I miss, am I missing something here? Because, because, I mean, Star Trek has done parallelism plenty of times before. I mean, The Next Generation was in full production when they were still making movies with, uh, with, with Shatner and Yeah, Lee but the, and the same, thing. I mean, they didn't make Generations until, until after the seventh season. Isn't, isn't that so? Or like someone's going to go on the internet, the literal net, no, no, that, correct me. No, that's true. I mean, the 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 next generation was was sort of aiming towards it was aiming towards its own end, and then they were going to pick up and start making movies. I, I just mean, I mean, it was going into darkness. You mean it was going into dark? Exactly. Hey, you know what? It literally went into darkness because um, they took the same set of the bridge in Enterprise, and and, and, and they made it darker. Generations, yeah, yeah. They just lit it with yeah. less light to make yeah, it more dramatic and movie like. It's true. That's really funny. Actually, another interesting question to ask for this would have been like, what existing TV franchise do you want to see start making movies? Yeah, but well, I would I, love to see. Know, a, I would love to see a, a Walker Texas Ranger movie. <laughs> Roundhouse so, kicks, no Chuck Norris. It would be really yeah. controversial. So, so right. it, it, in terms of, of adaptations, this is another tidbit I, I read a long time ago. Um, it was a book that, about the um, the failed attempt to to make a new Star Trek series in the 1970s. The, the original plan after. Uh, the original series went off the air, and, and as, as I think Pete, you said, um, it was it was very unpopular when it was, during its original run, and then it started to, to gain popularity in syndication. And Paramount uh, sort of started to think, well, hey, we could maybe make some more money with this, and they actually started developing a, 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 another TV series. It was going to be called Star Trek Phase Two, and uh, it was going to star wow. most, yeah, for real, and most. And most <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, so there, there's there's a lot going on there. It actually. History actually did sort of play itself out in that they were going to launch the show with a new television network, which they later did Star Trek Voyager, but I digress. Um, so for this new series that we're going to make in the 70s, it was going to be most of the, the same, the original cast, they're going to bring back William Shatner. Uh, Leonard Nimoy wasn't so sure, so they were going to get a different sort of Vulcan character on there. And um, what ended up happening was that Star Wars came out in 1977, and all of a sudden, you know, a science fiction movie was incredibly popular and incredibly successful. And so they decided to can this TV series they were trying to make, and and made the motion picture instead. So that's when Star Trek became a movie series. Yeah, we all know how that turned out. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, the point of this whole this whole digression is that um, in a book I, I read about the production of this failed show, there's a little afterward where it sort of muses on the fact that you know Star Trek is a unique franchise in that um, it became a movie series with the original cast. And many of the people who actually also produced the original show got involved. So there was this incredible amount of continuity in the production and and in the portrayal of the characters. 
can you imagine, and, and it sort of, it sort of uh, imagines a world in which um, that had not happened. Instead, maybe this other show was made, maybe it was sort of a middling success and then went off the air, and then years later, they decided to make a big-budget reboot of Star Trek, and they sort of speculate, what if, what, you know, what if they'd, uh, this, I think the book came out around the time they just made, like, Lost in Space and a few other sort of remakes of 60s science fiction uh, shows. And they said, well, can you imagine a big, splashy Star Trek action movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as Captain Kirk and John Travolta as Mr. Spock? And so this was meant to be preposterous. I mean, when this book was written, like, no, Star Trek movies were still being produced, Star Trek TV shows were still being produced, um, and, and this, was, this was a ridiculous thought. But, but lo and behold, that history has, in fact, played out, but just later on, because... The Star Trek, you know, the, all the Star Trek that came before these reboots sort of fizzled out, and then they, they did make a big splashy Hollywood reboot, <laughs> ultimately. So, uh, sorry, I don't know what the point of all that was, but just uh, no, it's it's really kind of interesting, actually, that like that idea was going to happen no matter what. Yeah, right. There was, was there was no getting around it. Right. They have a destiny, as Spock Spock now apparently would say. Can I yeah. can, can I advance a conjecture about the summer, or was someone else going to hijack the podcast uh, and is in line to do it before me? No, conjecture away. Okay, I I want to talk about about these summer movies because you know watching watching Iron Man and seeing the trailers, and then then like watching this and seeing some of the trailers. Um, I talked about this a little bit. It seemed like it seems to me like this is the uh, this is the the like the summer movie season that is about like distrust in institutions. Uh, you know, Iron Man three had a lot to say about this. Like uh, uh, Star Trek has a lot to say about this. There's this like bank ro- magical bank robbing movie uh, coming out in a couple weeks, right? And then there's another one about. Uh, corporate terrorism or something like this and the, you know uh, coming out all coming out this summer and it's it seems to me that like this is like i don't know the summer where the 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 wire goes goes mainstream or something like well, that because like the the idea yeah i know drink because the idea is that uh or at least goes action movie because you know the idea that there is something like fundamentally fundamentally corrupt or sort of fundamentally um fundamentally imperfect in a in a malignant way not in a like uh, lovable human way but in a malignant way at the heart of at the heart of institutions even in, at the heart of an institution like like um like Starfleet because before Starfleet or the Federation was like uh you know I don't know it was kind of like the West Wing it wasn't it wasn't it was a political fantasy but it was also a fantasy that that we could sort of try to be our best selves all the time you know mm-hmm. and nothing would interfere with that um and honestly in season 5 when the West Wing like uh threw a wrench in that it became a real drag uh and so they got <laughs> so they got did they, did they put RoboCop in charge also <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping someone would bring up Peter Weller <laughs> yeah. it's it's only rarely a good idea to put RoboCop in charge so i mean if you if you're living so, in Detroit if the worst case scenario has come to pass and you're living in Detroit. <laughs> so, well, one, so one thing related to what you're saying, Matt, is, is that, um, I mean, it, when I heard that the, the subtitle of this new Star Trek movie is going to be Into Darkness, I was sort of did a double take. I was like, well, that's kind of strange. Because as you say, Star Trek, the, the Starfleet and the Federation and, and members thereof are supposed to be these paragons of virtue. And there really wasn't a lot of this sort of, uh, you know, pol- uh, corruption and rot it didn't really come into Star Trek until much later, until Deep Space Nine. The reason I mention that is because as much as this movie took, you know, basically remade the con plot, which is not a deep cut as far as Star Trek is concerned, they brought up Section 31, which is a very deep cut from Star Trek, which is like this corrupt paramilitary organization that is, you know, invented on Deep Space Nine. So the, the fact they brought that into this, this again, this, this rebooted Star Trek franchise right away, uh, I think, yeah, speaks to what you're, you're talking about. So, I think that... Zoom back this, out to the macro level. Um, Matt, you're talking about this summer, the, the, uh, a common thread running through movies is this distrusted institutions. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing about um, what American society society after Watergate, right? When I say you, I mean like social theorists, uh, historians, sociologists have uh, put forth that theory that Watergate and Vietnam were these moments where we really lost a lot of faith in our institutions. And, um, you know, it sort of ebbed and flowed throughout the years, like, you know, uh, Persian Gulf War, the first one, we thought, yeah, our institutions, our army are, are good again. Um, and then uh, Iraq War, the second Iraq War, uh, and and, uh, and the Bush administration and the uh, financial crisis and all these sorts of things. Like uh, institutions are bad again. It's sort of uh, we may be at sort of a nadir moment, perhaps. 
I would say that this particular film takes a, a few bad apples approach to it. Like Star Starfleet and the Federation do still have the potential to be their best selves. Um, and that's what the big monologue is at the end, right? But that, uh, that there's always this threat that they're going to slip, and that that threat is fundamentally more of a problem than the threat posed by Khan, right? Because, because Khan fundamentally just wants to be left alone. And that, I think, is maybe the sort of the interesting way that it... Um, the place where the idea of what 9-11 was all about really begins to be a bit, perhaps, juvenile is that uh, that line that Cumberbatch has where he's like, you should have let me sleep, uh, which he, he delivers the heck out of. Um, but the notion is, right, that it's like, as long as we don't go looking for trouble, we're not ever going to get into trouble, which, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's certainly a case to be made, right? But if I was someone who was a lot more politically right-wing than I am, I would probably look at that and roll my eyes so far back in my head that they, like, do a full loop and come out the, other, the bottom of my eyelids. <laughs> Well, the, I mean, the, very early in the movie, I mean, one one way that this is a reboot, like one of the the fantasies that Star Trek is is predicated on, I think, is that if you remove economic inequality, right, by by creating a magical source of energy that you know, I don't know, makes um, everybody into you know, a rich person. Um, and, and you turn as Patrick Stewart is fond of, of telling us in the next generation to better yourselves. And all you want to do is <laughs> better yourselves. Um, right. Like, uh, the, you know, as the point, of, as though the point of life were this like extended, uh, I don't know, this kind of extended therapy, right? Like the, the this movie gives lie to that very early on, right? Like w- with the idea that like, well, no, you know, in all of this, in all of this opulence, the guy, you know, guy has a sick daughter, mm-hmm. and, you know, and suddenly he's rife, he's rife for blackmail. And I mean, that's, that's the problem with, you know, that's the problem with all of this, uh, you know, removing, removing economically determined suffering does not remove sort of suffering uh, and, and inequality from, you know, from the human equation. Um, you know, it still sucks to, to not get what you want in any number of ways. And that can sort of fester and be exploited and, and, you know, whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking like, I'm thinking this future where like, okay, so a lot of, a lot of, um, problems have been solved, right? Sort of general economic, uh, scarcity, energy scarcity. Um, and presumably like the, the state of medicine has advanced very far as well too. Right. So that what, what this girl, the sick girl, at the beginning of the movie, you know, has some extremely rare disease that the advanced medicine of the 23rd century can't solve. Mm-hmm. Right. So that like, I, I don't know, like, I think about our phenomenon that we have today of like hashtag first world problems. Right. You know, like, you know, I don't know, like print, printer cartridge out of toner and, you know, like, you know, causes someone to break down into tears. Like, does that just like <laughs> make make the humanity like it was like it was so weak and lacking in resilience? Right, that like small problems uh, uh, cause people in, in, to turn to desperation. Like, you know, um, uh, selling out Starfleet to terrorists. Like, maybe that uh, that poor girl just had a really bad cold, and the guy couldn't take it. <laughs> right, right. Hashtag zero with the world problem. Are we talking? Are we talking about Peter Weller's motivation here, or are we talking about the villain of Iron Man three? Who are we? We're no, we're talking about, about the the father of the guy whose daughter is sick, and the you know who becomes a pawn oh, in Khan's like the, plan. Was that Mickey from Doctor Who? Maybe. I think it might have been. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, I hear you. Well, okay. I just wanted to make sure I knew who we were talking about and which daughter was yeah. sick or whether it was just the little girl with the leg missing or any of that stuff. Okay. I mean, I don't know. To, to answer a little bit, it's like... Daughters, this, uh, right? This summer. It's the summer of daughters. Point of weakness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's also like, I think the first world problems thing is kind of silly because it's sort of like... It, it has this idea that our emotions are calibrated to some sort of absolute scale, right? That like the, that we have some sort of benchmark for how upset we're supposed to get based on how important a certain thing is, and that there's sort of an absolute hierarchy of importance. I mean, that's sort of the reason it's funny is because we don't work that way, and we sort of feel like we ought to. Um, but you know, our, our ups and downs and moods are much more a consequence of kind of our the relative aspects of things we perceive and experience, right? Like to there are yeah, other right. experiences. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it makes sense to be crying 
over like a, I don't necessarily feel like somebody who cries over a toner cartridge, if they were thrown into a situation where all of a sudden there were bombs falling around their house, they would like necessarily be worse equipped to handle it than somebody who is already crying because there are already bombs falling around right, their house. Right, because they would stop crying about the toner cartridge and they would start crying about something else, you know? Yeah, I mean? exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. but that's, that, that's the argument that those things advance. That's not a, a criticism of the argument. The right, point right, is right. that like your context is insufficiently broad because in fact for a large enough value of all around there are bombs falling around all of us at this moment right and then the, well then the other question is if you took somebody who has bombs falling all around their house and you took them away from that for a little while do you think they would still get upset about toner cartridges and of I think course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Th- but that doesn't mean that like th- those of us who are privileged, as we all like pretty much are, don't have any kind of obligation to to deal with that and be aware of that just because other people in our in our place might not do any better than we are. You know, right? But that also means <laughs> that privilege does not necessitate a weakness of character. Like no, 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 by, no, no. By itself, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, uh, it presents you with a challenge of character, rather. Right. Uh, right. I would but, say. Okay. Yeah. I love how this like this analogy has spun out. So, like, in my in my mind, I'm starting to think like, okay, so taking uh, someone who's crying about their to- printer toner cartridge and putting them into like Afghanistan, that's like a what? That's an Iron Man solution to an office space problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, the, I mean, even like kind of a Hangover Three solution to an office space problem. Right? Now, the um, the Star Trek solution to the office place pro- office space problem is that like. Jordy says, you know, if I, if I just flash the dilithium matrix of the toner cartridge, we'll get 30 more pages out of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Captain. You know, this is actually another uh, reason, another way that the, the turgidness of the Star Trek TV series <laughs> maybe works in its advantage, right? Is that it presents you with these kind of um, insoluble allegorical problems, right? And then the solution is always technobabble. And that's always transparently, like, not really a fix for it, right? And we, we've talked at great length about Babylon 5 solutions and Star Trek problems and all that kind of stuff. But it also uh, prevents the show the embarrassment of having to say what the solution actually is, right? Um, which this, this movie didn't take that, right? Like, the solution is just don't go poking the terrorist, you know? Uh, it's, <laughs> the terrorist is essentially like a, uh, a beehive, right? Do not throw rocks at it, and you'll be totally okay. Um, which maybe in the real world it doesn't work that nicely. Now, if they had done this on um, on like an episode of the Next Generation, the solution would have been to do something to the warp core, and you wouldn't walk away with that sort of bad taste in your mouth, saying like, "Well, the world isn't quite that nice." Because it's so transparently not that nice that we can just engineering our way out of it, um, you don't feel you don't like tend to, to to spew the solution out of your mouth in quite the same way, right? I think that the best. Uh, I mean, you're right. I don't know. I feel like rushing to to the defense of my beloved Next Generation. So pardon me if I get a little defensive, right? But um, I feel like <laughs> I feel like the best moments of the best moments of the Next Generation, at least, which is the series I'm familiar with, I, you know, sort of it, it, uh, issue that right. Like, and I'm thinking of like, well, I actually believed I I saw four lights. That is, our uh, five lights, right? <laughs> like that is to say, our convictions are malleable under the right under the right kind of pressure. And that's mm-hmm. just kind of a conundrum like embedded in, in our experience. I suppose I took a dimmer view of what the message is beyond, you know, don't poke the con um, more, <laughs> right? Like more, more along the lines of there is this, there is this kind of, there is this revenge drive kind of latent within us all the time. And we have to kind of be vigilant against that. Uh, uh, you know, in order to, I don't know, in order to advance and like live happy lives and, you know, be on balance, good for the world. <clears throat> so, yeah. the, the, so that, yeah, that's an interesting point you just made rather, because the, the whole vengeance uh, plot, again, being front and center in both the wrath of Khan and in this reboot is something that I, I, I found, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys can help me understand it better because in the wrath of Khan, it seemed uh, more, well, first of all, Khan's motivation was was vengeance. His wife had died, and he was angry at Kirk, and he wanted to take revenge on Kirk. But the, and this movie d- seems to have a somewhat more ambivalent view of, but but ultimately leads to Khan's. That, that that's actually what makes Khan a villain, and ultimately leads to his own destruction. In this one, it seems like there's both Khan and Kirk, and ultimately Spock want revenge, and also that bad admiral. There's a lot of there's a lot of vengeance going on. 
And it seems like this, this movie doesn't, I don't know, it, it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth because it, it didn't seem to be condemning, you know, the, the, the somehow, you know, seeking revenge for one's ills is necessarily, it, it, didn't, it didn't present that as somehow a moral problem. I, felt. I, I think it kind of did. I think it said that like the the urge to vengeance is very natural, um, but you have a choice to follow that or not, you know, mm. um, and that you can. I think the the problem with just saying okay, vengeance is bad is that you're always left with the possibility of being presented with a situation where this time it's justified because this time the sin was great enough. It's personal. This time right? it's personal. <laughs> and what, I think the, the actually the rather interesting thing that uh, that this one does as a moral message um, that's appealing to me personally at least is to say that even if it is bad, even if it is a a like an act that deserves vengeance, um, the right action might still be not to take vengeance. And I think that the uh, the fact that they freeze Khan again at the end rather than executing him, mm. even though, you know, they could totally pass judgment on the guy and string him up. He's, he's clearly, uh, you know, without, without violating any of the Star Trek uh, codes of conduct, without uh, doing a kangaroo court, they would have a case for doing that. But they've decided that, you know, like, this is not the, uh, what we want Starfleet to be. We want to be explorers, not a military organization and not a police force, um, which mm. is like the thing that we've been doing in this movie, which you paid to see, right? Mm. <laughs> in a way that you probably yeah. wouldn't pay to see yeah. them just exploring, <laughs> but still. Yeah, it, you know, that's, that's a good point, Jordan. It just occurs to me that that is strangely parallel to the original sort of con episode of the original series, where they don't pass judgment on them, they just leave them on a planet. There's a similar sort of stepping back from... Yeah, I mean, they could have... Khan tries to take over the Enterprise in that old Star Trek episode, and then they could they could have you know sentenced him to some life you know term in prison in a Federation prison, but instead they just say no, no, he's of a different time. We'll leave him on a planet. In a similar way, they sort of freeze him in this this movie. And this movie, I thought it was more like they try to hit him with a bunch of things, and then they try to shoot him a bunch of times, and hit him with a bunch of other stuff, and they finally decide to hit him in the face with a handle. Right? Like just, <laughs> I'm going to solve this problem. Thwack! You know, it's like, oh, That's golden logic for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, oh, let's were... leave it. Oh, yeah? No, no, I, I was just, I, I liked this movie a lot more than I guess some of the rest of you did. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that. Too. I thought that the fight scene, the awesome thing in the fight scene is when uh, Spock gets the upper hand by doing the mind meld rather than the nerve pinch. The, like being forced to, to, to feel empathy for people is something that Khan finds deeply disquieting. I don't know. I could go on, but I shouldn't. <laughs> Uh, well, we yeah, we won't go on anymore. That's uh, it for our discussion of um, the new the new new Star Trek two. So, uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can email podcastoverthinking dot com. You can call two zero three two eight five six four zero one. You can uh, leave a comment on the show notes in this episode. We'll be back next week. Uh, thanks very much to our special guest, the foremost expert on Star Trek, Ben Krinsky. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much. I've had a great time. Uh, until next week, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably does prediction for Star Trek 3 is that the, uh, the blood that they use to regenerate Chris Pine turns out to have been taken from the Tribble that they already put Cumberbatch's blood into. And as a result, he begins to exhibit Tribble properties. And the big trailer <laughs> shot is like a overhead compartment opening and just massive, massive pile of Chris Pines falls out all over Simon Pegg and crushes him <laughs> into the ground. Is it, called, is it called Trib Wolf? Is that what it is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> A thousand times, yes.